Hello and welcome to episode 4.9, which is the second anniversary episode of my podcast. It was exactly two years ago that I recorded the first episode while staying at Hotel Fettler in Iceland. That was the birthplace of this podcast. A lot has happened and I didn't mean to take such a long break between episodes and my previous episode was only music. My mother has just passed away. But those emotions are too vast to try to even talk about here. So instead what I'm going to do for this anniversary episode is see if I can finish all my backlog. All those notes that I had jotted down for past episodes which I didn't cover in them. But first let me say that all my achievements are also my parents' achievements. Everything that I do is only possible because of them. They gave me life and have always been there for me. Now we'll move into a stream of going from one thing to another. By the way, I'm sitting on my new leather couch, which was delivered all the way from Denmark. And so if you hear some suspect sounds, it will be from the couch. A couple of episodes ago, I talked about symphonies and how Originally, they weren't designed to be listened to more than once. What I neglected to say was that I meant listened to by any single person, because it was so unlikely in those days that the same person could attend more than one performance of a symphony. This was the days before any kind of recording was possible. And of course, as I mentioned back then, some symphonies didn't get any performances in the composer's lifetime. I wanted to do a full episode about my collection of short stories called At Dawn Early Short Stories which is now available as a handsome hardcover, paperback and ebook. But that will have to wait for another episode because now I want to do this backlog thing because that's a big thing for me this year, a big theme. I've always liked the Psycho films. I especially like the second one. That's my favorite of those. I think it's a very human film, beautiful in many ways, terrific music by Jerry Goldsmith. 
And the story is the most affecting to me because the way I take it is that Norman was actually healed. He was better and he would have been fine if other people had left him alone. So it is a tragic story, well told. The third film also has a terrific soundtrack. That's the one of those films directed by Anthony Perkins himself. The fourth film, Made for TV, is not worth watching in my view. I think it ruins things by showing too much of the past, which is better left to the imagination. And for the same reason, I'm not interested in watching any series based on the youth of Norman Bates or anything like that. I just like those first three films. Many of my favorite creative people use language in such a way that it doesn't go out of date. One of them is David Lynch, another is Ray Bradbury. Nearly everything they said in their work or elsewhere will still feel fresh and clear a hundred years from now and way further into the future. One of my favorite pieces of Henry Purcell's music is What Power Art Thou from the opera King Arthur from the 1690s. It's a modern, surprising piece and something that transcends time for sure. I'm one of those people who love to hear David Lynch swearing. There's a few people in the world that I, for some reason, really get something out of when I hear them swear. I'm not the only one. I've seen people on YouTube comments, for example, say the same thing. A long time ago, I talked about the music of Ron Jones, who created the best soundtracks for the TV series Star Trek The Next Generation. And uh, for anyone interested in music and understanding music and composing, I highly recommend looking up the free sleeve notes from a publication called Film Score Monthly. Those sleeve notes of many, many, many pages are available on their website. Uh, any Star Trek made this side of the year 2000 is of no interest to me, however, and I want to be clear that that's a world I no longer feel comfortable with at all. I don't think that what they are doing these days at all embodies what Star Trek was meant to be. It was meant to be about a truly better future, where prejudices had been done away with. In the new series and films, prejudice is rife. It's everywhere. Ageism and all that. And it's simply not the same world. It's been brought to the level of any other TV series. <laughs> 
Once upon a time, I met a person. This is not somebody who was ever my friend or close to me in any way. She was like a dragon who hoards gold, except she hoards dogs and she hoards so-called best friends like a dragon hoards gold. They are only property to her and she gets her satisfaction from that ownership of the dogs and people who believe they are in a co-equal friendship with this person. This is not how it is for her. She is a classic smiling but secretly controlling mother figure. She manipulates, undermines and sows doubt to make her aims come true. Here's a quote from the work of Philip K. Dick from his novel Valis from 1981. There exists for everyone a sentence, a series of words that has the power to destroy you. Another sentence exists, another series of words that could heal you. If you're lucky, you will get the second, but you can be certain of getting the first. Ideas can't be forced, but you can do things to invite ideas. Your intuition knows. It always knows. Everything does connect with everything else, and you can connect any two or more things in any way you like. The only requirement is that you must feel it is authentic and right. Don't fake it until you make it. That doesn't work. It's some of the worst advice possible. If you try to fake it until you make it, you'll only break it. And if that it is a thing worth having, by faking you may ruin your only chance at ever having it. negative space. What you don't do or what you leave out can be just as or even more important than what you do put in. There's no rule that says a novel must be at least 250 pages, or even 200 pages, or even 150 pages.
you can create something beautiful and fresh by simply leaving out all the extraneous things most others put in, things that are in for a time. A film I think will literally make you a better person if you watch it. A tall order, but on level-headed reflection I believe it is true, is the hours. It will very likely devastate you emotionally, but it's a cleansing, orienting devastation. Though not one I would recommend experiencing often. The same is true of The Elephant Man. It could probably destroy a person if they kept re-watching either of these two films over and over without long breaks between viewings. They are painful and literally hurt in many places to watch. But doing so can do something good to your soul. Same with Twin Peaks Firewalk With Me, which is an extremely raw and graphic film that has the power at least under certain circumstances, to even give you an anxiety attack. But if you get through it and feel up to it, then you can come out the other end seeing the world freshly again, with some cobwebs cleared out. The same is true of David Lynch's Inland Empire. These are films that involve you so intensely that it's not possible to obsess about your own life problems while watching them. And when that happens, when something forces your mind off your obsessing, that is a key factor in breaking an obsessive loop. Breaking the chain of obsession, even for a moment, lets you walk free of the shackles, those chains. On that note, here's my very best advice to everyone when it comes to dealing with trauma. Believe me, this will work and it is the only thing that will really help. Start making changes right away after something like that has happened. Start doing things that must be done. Change your environment. If there's something that can, for example, bring in more light, take out the trash, throw away something you've been meaning to get rid of. Do anything that takes steps forward and start doing them as soon as possible. Don't wait for the next day or the next week because it will only get more difficult. This is not callous. This is truly a necessary part of being able to continue life. But when you need to crash, when that happens, it's also important to let that happen. Just crash. Just cry as much as you need to. But then, when you can, again, don't stay still too much because that's the worst thing you can do in traumatic times. The idea is not to escape the emotions. What I said relates to what I was saying here about how necessary it is to do things that also force you to concentrate on other things than the grief. That is absolutely necessary for healing.
I would love to be doing readings of Ray Bradbury every day. But the reality is, of course, that all his work is protected by copyright and will remain so for many decades to come. If I were free to do so, I would read aloud on this podcast, for example, his 1952 short story, The April Witch. When I first read it many years ago now, it left me breathless. It went straight through all my defenses, which only something completely heartfelt can do. And all I could think of was, how could I have stayed away from this beauty for so long? His work, I mean, because sometimes years and years have passed when I've been doing other things. I asked myself, how can we possibly forget and stray away from such beauty and honesty to things that are far uglier and far less truthful? How can our minds betray us so? How can we end up wasting our lives when there are very clearly things that are not a waste of life? Well, there are many answers to that, and that's a question really worth thinking about. We stray to other things for reasons. Some of the reasons are malicious and manipulative, and from the outside. Others involve simple forgetfulness and getting lost in the fog of difficult times. But when you find one of your special things again, try to remember it. And not let it disappear from your life. About the film Close Encounters of the Third Kind, I love those scenes in the suburbs. You see even more of them in one of the cuts than the others, because there are several different cuts of the film, some longer, some shorter. But here's what I had written down on another matter. But yeah, I would move into those suburbs if I could. I know that many Americans have had bad experiences or memories of places like that. But I could imagine that with the right person, the right family, it could be heaven. And I was glad to hear that my friend Nelson felt the same way and could absolutely understand that point and felt that way too. But here's another thing. When Roy, played by Richard Dreyfus, who is losing his family to the seeming madness that started with his close encounter, which of course can be seen by anyone with a strong creative drive as a metaphor for that, for creativity or a creative moment, wakes up one morning into the light of sanity. He literally sculpts a mountain out of mashed potatoes, and others who've experienced the same make drawings and paintings of the mountain. It's a metaphor for creativity. The close encounter is the moment of vision, of inspiration, of the idea literally sneaking up behind him and then flashing down upon him. In this moment later of snapping into sanity and snapping out of his obsession in the light of sun streaming in through the window and he's in his unwashed bathrobe in which he fell asleep exhausted, and there are Warner Brothers cartoons on the TV that bring him a sudden moment of clarity and perspective and sanity. But then he tears down the top of a clay mountain he's built in his suburban home, and suddenly the mountain is perfect. That was how it was supposed to be. Now the shape is correct, that had eluded him before, and the obsession returns with a renewed force. By doing this, 
Spielberg and the other makers of that film get to eat their cake and have it too. They get to depict both the moment of clarity, of sanity returning, but then they also get to pursue that story of obsession to its conclusion. They eat the cake and have it too. But this kind of switcheroo needs to be earned. If someone did this with calculation, it could feel to the viewer unearned and a betrayal. But in this film, it's earned and integral. By the way, this is one of the greatest storytelling principles that, for example, Northern Exposure knew how to use. You can eat your cake and have it too, in many different ways when it comes to storytelling. About the ending, Steven Spielberg has said that it was a young man's story and that he might not have the main character make that ultimate choice anymore, now as a family man himself. Because what the character does at the end is abandon his family, maybe forever, to go off on his journey. It's depicted as joyous. But how joyous is it to his children and wife that he abandons? At the end of one of the different cuts of this film, John Williams's score quotes the song When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. Well, Roy's dream came true, but how about his family? They lost the father and husband, and those kids will grow up without a father. And in fact, if you think about it, the aliens don't seem to care what they did to this family. And in fact, to all the people they afflicted with this vision. It feels like a happy ending when you see it. But that's because the music, the direction, the writing and the acting and all the rest sell it that way. But the aliens could have chosen someone without a family. Why not choose someone who has no one? Either they don't care or, maybe more to the point, Spielberg at that point in his life was possibly unknowingly expressing a selfish conception of life, of sacrificing even family and other people's happiness to his own pursuit of the glowing artistic vision. I believe in art as burningly as anyone I know, but Roy didn't need to go off on that ship and apparently forever abandon his family. If he had been a truly mature man, he would have come to a realization similar to what Kevin Costner's character comes to at the end of Field of Dreams. When he's asked whether they are in heaven, he looks around and sees what a miracle he's living. It's Iowa, but for him, for any actually emotionally mature man, it is also heaven. Dignity. Many actors bring dignity to whatever they do, and that dignity gets exploited for many stories that frankly don't deserve that at all. In these stories, nearly everyone is a moral failure of a human being. Any story asking the audience to feel bad for a mob boss because he too has emotional issues. Well, I might be willing to identify with him if he made the slightest effort to be anything other than a piece of human scum that destroys other people's lives. Stopping living his life that way would be the recommended first step to resolving those emotional issues. In a certain series, Brian Cranston's character is meant to be a manipulative weasel just scraping through by the skin of his teeth. 
To be clear, I'm not criticizing him as an actor or human being. I'm criticizing these stories that present themselves as mature and that people actually take to be such, even when they are the opposite. This series, of course, knowingly exploit that dignity these actors can project, but it is exploitation because the reality is that that's the only thing that keeps the viewers from switching off in disgust at the tawdry, emotionally stunted journeys they are expected to go on. I think it would be lovely to have people like Jonathan Banks in more stories actually worth telling, rather than the wacky, happy-go-lucky adventures of a bunch of drug dealers, murderers, and even worse. I often wonder at the emotional toll it takes on both the viewers and creators of these things to drag themselves through this kind of garbage week after week, month after month, and year after year. The whole aim, and the only bullet in their gun, to use an appropriately ugly metaphor, is desensitization. To be clear what I mean by garbage, I'm referring to the stories being told, not the skill of the artists, including, of course, the actors, directors, lighting people, costume designers, makeup artists, and all the rest. Production values and skilled artistry are not enough to save a story from being garbage. But people often get outraged at this kind of statement. I, of course, don't particularly care because I have to speak my own convictions, otherwise it would not be worth listening to anything I'm saying. I think it's worth saying that series like Breaking Bad and Game of Thrones are not mature storytelling. They are an emotionally backwards teenager's idea of mature storytelling. And that's no slight against teenagers. I'm describing how immature these stories are. Grittiness, violence, moral compromise, and a lot of yelling and ranting. And pointing guns at people, of course. There's nothing mature about that, yet most of the TV-watching world lives in the belief that that's the height of intelligent storytelling. Which, for me, goes a long way towards explaining why the world is in such a mess. If those are our ideals of the heights of storytelling, it says something sad about what we're doing with our lives. A good creative principle is that when any task starts to feel unwieldy, you can simply break it into smaller, more manageable chunks. The smaller the chunks you break the overall task into, in other words, the more modular you can make it, the easier it is and the more freedom you have. Here's a quote about whose source I'm uncertain, so I can't cite a name. The best teachers are those who show you where to look, but don't tell you what to see. It's a beautiful comic book by Paul Chadwick called Concrete, and in one of the stories, a character called Melissa Strangehands 
is thinking about how much art comments on other art endlessly, rather than drawing from the vast panoply of life. In this single course can be found the main reason why so much entertainment is so anemic. It draws almost only from other works of entertainment, rather than from life and life experience. There's so much that is left out of entertainment and art. Have you ever wondered why so many films and TV series and books are so anemic emotionally and in terms of the content about what it feels like to watch them? Well, this is a particularly big one. Many, many episodes ago, I raised a series of questions, but they all came down to this basic one. If you think of your favorite TV series, does art exist or play any kind of role in that world? Does anyone in that series have a meaningful relationship with nature or to painting, sculpture, music? Where are the musicians in that world? Where's theater? Where are the actors, the directors, writers, dancers? Well, one reason these either don't exist at all, or certainly don't have any meaningful role to play in that story, is that the makers have to keep those things out, because their existence in the story world would make it plain and clear how ridiculous these stories are, with their slow, ponderous delivery and meaningful pauses. Theater and music and any type of art would mean humor and changing moods and snapping out of these obsessive lives everyone is leading. And the makers of the series can't afford that because they need to keep the viewer in a state like that too, of sullen, depressed stupor. No series without art and nature having a meaningful presence deserves to be called mature. Only as kids are we so self-obsessed that all we care about are our own selves and other people, and that's it. garden remains beautiful as long as there are only a limited number of items arranged within it. If you keep adding rocks to it indefinitely, it becomes a quarry or a pile of rocks. It loses its aesthetic and emotional value. Over the years I've done many things and ended up learning from my own actions that I love fragmentation as part of a creative process. I thought I was starting and finishing a lot of separate things, but eventually over a long period of time I came to realize that they are all fragments that add up to something.
Here's some more on a topic I was just talking about. It repeats part of what I said, but only partly. Is there art and are there artists in this world? What role do they play, if any? Do any of the main characters have meaningful relationships with art? Are there theatres, paintings, sculpture, drawing? Do people write poems and stories? Does fiction exist to any meaningful extent in the world? Do comedians exist? And I don't mean only this stereotypical medieval fool in some court setting. Here's a real good question. Would a comedian appearing in this story world shatter this world? If Norm MacDonald, behaving more or less like himself, appeared in Game of Thrones or Breaking Bad, for example, puncturing the seamlessly psychotic intensity of a scene, would the characters and that world withstand and keep you believing in them, or would the whole thing appear as a sad waste of life? Would it crumble? Adult people, usually mostly men, grimacing and projecting anxiety and teenaged self-obsessiveness through years or maybe even decades of television. Would someone raising a commonsensical objection within that world to someone's absurd pomposity or to the highly unlikely compliance of the rest of the characters render the whole thing plainly ridiculous? How about if somebody had a hysterical laughing fit all of a sudden in that story world? Most of us experience something like that once or many times in our lives. If somebody in that story world just laughed freely and helplessly, or if somebody simply said, come on man, don't be stupid, would that break the spell? I think with many series it would. Whereas with series such as Twin Peaks or Northern Exposure or Seinfeld, you could have this kind of thing happen, absolutely. The world of Twin Peaks can accommodate anything. Whereas these series I've mentioned and many others like them, they require this psychotic staying in this dour mood. That's why the people usually speak at this ponderous pace I mentioned, and why there's all these meaningful stares, and nobody ever says, "Geez, just, you know, do you hear the nonsense you're spouting here? Those stories wouldn't withstand that, because they require that psychotic feeling in the viewer as well as the characters. I don't use the word psychotic lightly, by the way. I really mean it. This is something I wrote in my notes during the second season. Lately I've seen in short succession, and for the first time in my life, dreams featuring Norm MacDonald, Philip Glass and David Lynch, all of whom I've talked about in episodes of this podcast. At least Norm MacDonald and David Lynch were here in Tampere, in their separate dreams. All were friendly and kind and encouraging to me. I didn't know them super well in the dreams, but there were situations where I got to interact with them a bit. I was involved in arranging some kind of activity with or for Norm MacDonald. 
and met up with him at a market that was being held downtown here, almost or actually on the main street where they recently laid tram tracks. With David Lynch, he was crossing the zebra crossing with me near the railway station, and he offered some encouraging and kindly words about something. The story is far more than the barest possible outline of its two or three turning points. It is all the literally millions, more than that, in fact, infinite, sense impressions, feelings, thoughts, stirrings, sparks, every single thing about it. Just like a person's trip to, say, Paris was a totally different thing than I went to Paris to take care of some business, then an inciting incident happened and I ended up caught in an international web of a side street I would have preferred not to venture into. But it all worked out in the end, I took care of the business and returned home. That summary expresses zero about the experience. But many people actually think that once they glean this kind of outline from a story in a given medium, They've understood and experienced it, and that's all there was to it, that story. This is like saying that all there is to you as a person, and your worth as a living being, is that you were born, you are experiencing mounting complications, and then one day you'll die. Those are the least important points about any person and story. A single thing can be interesting, but when you have two things, it becomes even more interesting. Imagine a pair of glasses on a stage, and also on the stage is a hammer. Immediately when you see this, your mind and feelings start going. What is the relationship of the two items? There are the items themselves, but also because of the very fact that they are presented together must mean there is some connection. Do you get an urge to smash the glasses with a hammer, or imagine someone else doing so? Or do you, for example, imagine they belong to a person who is a craftsperson and also wears glasses? Then add a third thing, a telescope. The possibilities multiply. Add a dress. Are all these things owned by the same person? Add a doll. Is it a family? Could still be a single individual. Or could be the person is no longer alive and these were things left behind. And so on. To infinity. Theater and storytelling offer infinite play this way. A piece of art, such as a story, is an array of elements that, artistically presented, conjure up feelings and thoughts, or simply convey an experience, or many experiences, rather. This is something I wrote about a series um, that I'm not now sure whether it was Northern Exposure or the Ray Bradbury Theatre, but it applies to both of them, and um, my guess would be Northern Exposure. That's absolutely true of all of it. 
It's a series for the young at heart, those young in their souls, those seeking and growing still, rather than having settled into a pattern that they'll then follow for the rest of their lives. Dear listener of the future, we live in a stupid time. You can't take a walk back here without bumping into incredible amounts of stupid. Drink cans such as soft drink cans or beer cans are incredible creations, precision engineered over a period of many years, perfected to be these great objects. Some have a matte finish, a matte touch to the fingers. Here's a poem by H.P. Lovecraft. It's called The Garden. There's an ancient, ancient garden that I see sometimes in dreams, where the very Maytime sunlight plays and glows with spectral gleams, where the gaudy-tinted blossoms seem to wither into grey, and the crumbling walls and pillars waken thoughts of yesterday. There are vines in nooks and crannies, and there's moss about the pool, and the tangled, weedy thicket chokes the arbor dark and cool. In the silent sunken pathways springs a herbage sparse and spare, where the musty scent of dead things dulls the fragrance of the air. There is not a living creature in the lonely space around, and the hedge-encompassed quiet never echoes to a sound. As I walk and wait and listen, I will often seek to find when it was I knew that garden in an age long left behind. I will oft conjure a vision of a day that is no more, as I gaze upon the grey, grey scenes I feel I knew before. Then a sadness settles over me, and a tremor seems to start. For I know the flowers are shriveled hopes, the garden is my heart. Here's something surprisingly often poorly done in film and TV series. You will start noticing it all over the place if you pay attention to it. Many times when the characters are supposed to be drinking something, you can easily tell that there is nothing in those containers. Mugs or soft drink containers from a fast food place or cups or whatever it is. If you can't see into them, much of the time there is nothing in them and you can easily tell that because of how those containers are handled if there was something in them they would need to be handled differently you can also easily tell if a heavy container of drink is obviously light and empty this is a 
think that should be very easy for actors to do better than they often do. Very few people manage it to fake it that way. There's probably some technical reason why there's no actual liquid in those containers, but it's difficult to imagine what that reason could be. Even when they pretend to drink, they just raise it to their lips much of the time and without actually, you know, taking a drink, you can tell that so easily. Even many really good actors fail to do this convincingly. Imagine a world without potatoes. I had a dream of you today in which you expressed such sorrow and wished to withdraw, a desolation close to wishing to no longer live, when in all the dreams of you before there had been that special spark and magic unique to you. I know this reflects much of reality, but all nightmares and heavinesses of heart end, and there will always be, somewhere, sometime, a bright new dawn of light and lightness. I believe I got through about half of the remaining notes during this episode. I will add one more anecdote. This is something that happened a couple of days ago. The young lady serving me at the store greeted me with Hey Paralla, an informal, light-hearted, friendly equivalent of Howdy or Hey There. And I said, Moi. That's not pronounced like the French Moi, rather just like Moi, M-O-Y would be in English. It's one of the most common greetings in Finnish. She immediately asked, English? It took me a moment to process. She was asking whether I wanted service in English. Then I said Finnish would be fine, and I asked her whether I sounded like I'm from elsewhere. She said yes, I seem to have a fine accent based on just that one word. I mentioned that was truly well spotted since I do, for example, write and speak in English all the time, And a friend of a friend once asked whether I'm originally from Finland, since, that guy said, I seem to speak Finnish with a softer accent than most Finns. It didn't occur to me to mention during today's interaction, but my coat is in fact from London, the scarf from Iceland, the hat of American origin, Stetson, the trousers Swedish, and the sneakers from Iceland. Anyway, I absolutely felt complimented by this and walked away with a light step. Thank you to everyone for listening. Happy second anniversary of my podcast. For some reason, that's not yet a national holiday. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, all the music in these episodes is by me, except, of course, for the two episodes with Pierre Estev, and with possible exceptions in the future where I would then mention that it's music created by somebody else. The pieces you've been hearing in this episode, as well as all the music I've done for earlier episodes, 
will eventually be released as standalone pieces of music also. In addition to other music that I'm making outside the needs of this podcast also. But I think I haven't mentioned this ever before that yes, all the music you've been hearing in this podcast from me and done by me will be available and most likely that will start happening this year along with a lot more music from me that I've done over the years that I am now working through. It's part of my big backlog project. I mentioned in a previous episode that a big part of my agenda for this year is to release all the backlog of different types that I've created over the years that will include music, poetry, visual art, and more. If you'd like to get a really good sense of how my book of short stories looks and feels, check out that video that I'm posting the same day as this episode goes out. That video can be found both on my website, on my YouTube channel, and on the different social media platforms that I'm using. I think a video like this gives the best possible sense of how a book really is compared to seeing only a static picture or thumbnail online, for example. I'm really happy with this book. There's a lot of my soul in it, and this is just the dawn. And I feel really lightened having these stories now finally out there. I've been carrying them for all these years. The earliest one of them is from now more than 20 years ago. And if I hadn't made it to this point, if I hadn't finished this book and put it out there into the world, those stories would most likely have disappeared with me one day. Now they are out there, I managed to throw them from the ship to the shore where they'll be safe. Or sometimes I think of another metaphor of what if I was falling off a cliff, I had just been pushed or the wind had blown me off a cliff and I had, let's say, a book in my hands and that book would contain music or stories that I had created and it would be lost if I went down with it. Well, if in that moment I managed to throw it to clear ground, then I'll have left something behind that would otherwise have disappeared with me. I hope all you good people out there trying to do the right thing in this world are going to have a good day or a good night. And may we all soon wake up to saner times. Much love to all the people who have supported me through very difficult times and know that I will be there for you also when you need it.
This was episode 4.9, the second anniversary special, and I hope you enjoyed it. Bye for now, and take care. Thank you.